I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, February 15th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Morning Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we talk with a lawyer representing a black FedEx driver who says he was the victim of a hate crime. Then a look at a bill to boost conservation funding in the state. And we talk with the directors of the new civil rights documentary, American Reckoning. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Twenty-four-year-old DeMontario Gibson says he was at work as a FedEx delivery man in Brookhaven a few weeks ago when he was chased and shot at by two white men. Multiple bullets riddled the Hertz rental van he was driving. In an interview with the Mississippi Free Press, Gibson claims he initially struggled to convince law enforcement to take the incident seriously. But now his story is getting national headlines. Carlos Moore is an attorney with the Cochran firm, which is now representing Gibson. Moore speaks with MPB's Brittany Brown. Basically, my client was delivering FedEx packages in a white community in Brookhaven on February the uh, 24th, between 7 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. He was on Junior Trail uh, Road in Brookhaven. He pulled into a driveway uh, as normal, uh, got out of his van uh, while he was in a full FedEx uniform, dropped the package off at the front door, got back in his van, and that's when the shenanigans uh, began. Uh, He saw a white pickup truck come from a house behind the main house on the same part of land. He didn't think anything of that. He thought the man may just be going to the grocery store, uh, something he soon realized that he was chasing him. The man got close to his van, the FedEx van, uh, the FedEx rental that had hurts on it and he started blowing uh, his horn, honking his horn trying to get the man to stop uh, he would not stop and the driver kept going uh, at this point uh, the man that was chasing him tried to cut him off, he got into the grass and tried to cut him off but he sped up hit the gas and was able to maneuver around the man and got out of the driveway onto the road and he thought that would have been the end of it but two or three houses down there was another white man standing in the middle of the road pointing a gun at him, mouthing stop, and had his hand up stop. And he knew better than to stop for a man that was not the police with a gun pointed at him. So he maneuvered around him uh, in the van and 
trapped ahead at the neighborhood. As soon as he moved, maneuvered around the man, he started shooting towards the back of his vehicle multiple times, on the back of the FedEx vehicle multiple times. He hit the gas, and that man, uh, the shooter, jumped in the truck with the other guy, and they chased him all the way to the highway uh, out of the neighborhood of Jackson to the interstate in Verdalen. And so that was about a 10 or 15-minute episode followed that, and um, he went straight to the station. While he was, while he was on the uh being shot at, his boss happened to call and she heard two of the shots. And she asked him, Was he being shot at? He said, Yes, um, I'm being shot at. And she heard, and she told him, Get him, meet him to the station as fast as he could to back to FedEx station. That's what he did. And then um, he also called the police and reported as he was going to the station. And then the next morning, his boss went to the station with him and showed him the, the bullet holes and the packages and in the truck and the bullet casing. And, um, I think when he called that same night, it happened on the 24th, the police said, well, we just got a call from this neighborhood that was a suspicious person. And he told him, sir, I'm not a suspicious person. I'm a FedEx driver. I was just doing my job. If I'm suspicious, if they think I'm suspicious, that's on them. I had on my FedEx uniform. So um, nothing happened for a while. Eight days later, they were allowed to turn themselves in, and they were arrested for conspiracy, the older guy. River case for conspiracy and the younger guy Brandon case was arrested for aggravated assault shooting into an occupied vehicle and we continue the man to go for the charges to be upgraded the state charges and continue to request uh, a federal hate crimes arrest we know the FBI got involved on Thursday of last week pursuant to my, to my request the day before and we know the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division is reviewing the matter as well uh, so we're pleased with that, but we are not pleased with the local police or the local district attorney. And you said that you, you've asked uh, federal law enforcement to get involved to pursue this as a hate crime. Uh, can you sort of walk me through that process of why and um, what you hope to see from both the local law enforcement and federal law enforcement? Yeah, we believe uh, it's a racially motivated hate crime. There is no earthly reason other than race that this would have transpired the individuals had never spoken before they had never seen each other before so uh i believe they saw a black man on on uh, a white man's property and they thought he looked suspicious and they hauled off and chased him and, and tried to kill him uh it's just purely racism plain and simple uh i believe the evidence is going to show that uh we have not been given any other explanation uh normal people don't go around shooting at uh, suspicious people multiple times I mean, um, what was suspicious about him? He had a FedEx uniform on. He delivered a package. You could see the package at the front door that he delivered. He didn't take anything from the property. He delivered something. But so to someone, as late as the case is requested, a package be delivered. So all you had to do was ask the person that lived in the house, who I believe was the mother of uh, Gregory Case, the grandmother of Brandon Case, did she request a FedEx delivery? <laughs> and she would have told him yes. So it is just um, mind-boggling. We believe it was a copycat father-son duo similar to the Ahmad Aubrey assailants. We are intent on going forward for justice and we want equal justice and not Mississippi justice. And when you say, you know, we expect justice and not Mississippi justice, you know, in a perfect world, what do you, what does justice look like in this case? Equal justice means uh, that these uh, individuals are held responsible uh, to the fullest, to the fullest extent of the law. I don't want the officers doing uh, the bare minimum. I want them treated this case as if the victim was a white victim. And so had uh, the victim been a white victim and the assailants been black, uh, the um, assailants would have been immediately arrested that same night. 
they would have been charged with attempted murder and they would have been given no bond or a high bond somewhere between five hundred thousand and a million dollars and i know this because i've lived in mississippi all my life most of my life and i am a municipal judge besides being a, a lawyer for 20 years so i know what the standard is and so i'm not making up anything i'm a judge in clarksdale and i'm also a judge in grenada municipal judge and i know what the bond should be so in this instance uh they undercharged this case and they're playing favoritism and we are sick of it we want an immediate um upgrade of the charges we want an immediate arrest for um attempted murder because that's what it was and if you don't get our request there will be a rally uh starting on february the 27th at saint james missionary baptist church uh if our demands are not met we're going to occupy green uh we're going to occupy Brookhaven until they are met and so we're going to be at city hall uh, in front of city hall we're going to be at the courthouse in front of the courthouse we're going to be on Virginia trail where this action took place, where the shooting took place, and we're going to occupy Brookhaven until we get some justice. We are not letting this go by uh, idly, and we have support from across the country and around the world, and people will show up in mass, and there will not be peace um, in Brookhaven until our demands are met. I don't believe in any violence, but I do be- believe people have the right to peaceably assemble and, and to make their voices known, uh, voices, have their voices heard. Carlos Moore is an attorney at the Cochrane Firm. Coming up, we talk with the directors of the new civil rights documentary, American Reckoning. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Legislation to establish the so-called Mississippi Outdoor Stewardship Trust has passed the State House by a vote of 117 to 4. The plan would dedicate millions per year to conservation efforts in the state. Alex Littlejohn is a director of the Mississippi Chapter of the Nature Conservancy and an advocate for increased conservation funding. Essentially what this is is dedicated are allocating a certain portion of funds every year going into the future that can be used at our discretion across the state. And when I say ours, I mean Mississippi's. And it can be used for anything on conservation and restoration. Uh, It can be used for city parks, state parks. It can be used for walking trails, biking trails. Uh, The list goes on. Wildlife habitat, everything that conservation means. How big of a difference will it make? I understand that you received 300000 but you haven't been able to get more money because the state hasn't been able to do a federal match. Currently, Mississippi does not receive any state-based conservation fund of this magnitude. We leave money on the table each and every year in Mississippi from the federal level because we simply can't bring the match needed to secure those funds. And Recently, our Secretary of State, uh, Michael Watson, has put together a conservation task force, and it's about two two dozen agencies, state, federal, private, charitable conservation groups, and that group got together, and we think that we're probably estimating on in the number of dollars we leave on the table every year in Mississippi we don't receive is between 40 and $60 million from the federal side that we we don't receive because we don't have the 
the matching funds at the state level necessary. So you think 40 to $60 million a year over 10 years, you're looking at half a billion dollars that Mississippi doesn't either receive or compete to receive uh, for conservation in the state. And that's, that's pretty significant. This trust is going to be the Mississippi Outdoor Stewardship Trust Fund, $10 million a year? Yes, so this particular trust was was set, was set aside as passed in the House. Um, their legislation would set aside over $10 million a year, and, and essentially it would be $10 million a year in year one, $12 million a year in year two, and then $15 million a year in year three, and then $15 million from there for the life of the program. The Senate has their own bill, correct? The Senate has their own bill. Uh, currently, the the dynamics between the House and the Senate are pretty stark. You know, the, the Senate doesn't actually allocate any money in their bill currently. They would they would do theirs on a on an annual appropriation basis every year, and um, they also limit limit charitable conservation groups such as Ducks Unlimited, Wildlife Mississippi, the Nature Conservancy, any land trust from being able to participate, and they would limit their participation in terms of projects just to the 20% of Mississippi that is held by the public. So public lands would be eligible under the Senate bill. Why should people care? You know, I think Mississippi's always held a strong sense of place, and we're probably tied to the land as much as anybody. Um, I've been very fortunate, traveled pretty extensively, and, uh, you know, this particular item resonates with Mississippi. Uh, we're connected to our, our outdoors, unlike any other state, I think, in the nation. You know, you want to care when you sit across that kitchen table from your kids or your grandkids. You want them to have the same experiences that you've had as as a, as, a, as an adult now in Mississippi, and um, we've got some beautiful places, and uh, we need to take care of them, and we need to be able to to hold them so that those kids at the kitchen table can can pass it on to theirs too. That's Alex Littlejohn of the Nature Conservancy in Mississippi. Still ahead, we talk with the directors of the new civil rights documentary, American Reckoning. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Tonight at 9, the documentary American Reckoning from Frontline PBS premieres on MPB TV. The film uses archival footage to tell the story of an armed group called the Deacons for Defense and Justice that fought back against racist violence in the Jim Crow South. The film also explores the circumstances surrounding the 1967 murder of NAACP leader. Warless Jackson and Natchez. I sat down with Yoruba Richin and Brad Lichtenstein, who directed American Reckoning. Richin says the film aims to re-explore stories largely lost within broader narratives of the civil rights era. I think the significance of American Reckoning is the uh, uncovering of history um, that has rarely been told on so many levels, and also. Uh, the story of the warless uh, of the Jackson family and their search for justice in the murder of their father 
Willis Jackson. You, you tell the story of, of Jackson's murder, um, but also the events that led up to it and the uh, terrorism that was afflicted on the black community in Natchez and how the community fought back and protected themselves. And it's a rarely seen part of our history in the black freedom struggle, um, which has been reduced to a nonviolent narrative. But the organization Deacons for Defense, who Willis worked with, they, they were defending their community and um, protecting the workers um, the civil rights workers at the time. And all of this is you're able to see through incredible archive footage um, that we were able to use in the in the film and to tell the story. How did you find out about Warless Jackson? Sure. Um, I can I can chime in on this one. For me, this project started in 2014. I um, had uh, the good fortune of having a lifelong relationship with the late Congressman John Lewis. And I was in his office talking about the possibility of doing a film together. And his press secretary, Brenda Jones, drew my attention to the Emmett Till Act, which reopened over 150 civil rights era murders, racially motivated murders. And Warless Jackson's name was on that list. And once we discovered that there had been two filmmakers in Natchez in 1965, the archival footage that Yoruba was mentioning, which was shot, you know, not in the conventional way we think of archival footage, where it's a lot of news coverage, but it was actually following people through the struggle that was happening in Natchez in 65. And once we discovered we had that footage or access to it, thanks to the Amistad Research Center at Tulane, um, we realized that we could make a beautiful film about this untold civil rights era narrative. Um, and then Yoruba agreed to join the team with me um, in 2016. I was telling her about this project, and she came on board in 2016. So um, once we realized that we had this incredible footage and this opportunity to be able to tell a story in real time, even though obviously it's coming to light in 2022, we knew that it was something that we just had to do. Warless Jackson's murder remains unsolved? Yes, yes, ma'am. The FBI in 1967 conducted a pretty thorough investigation. And back then, and even upon further review with the DOJ and the FBI, most fingers point, if not all, to a man named Red Glover, who was part of the Silver Dollar Group, which was an offshoot of the Klan and which had been written about by investigative reporter Stanley Nelson, who works out at Concordia Sentinel in Faraday, Louisiana, and who um, whose work we built on you know, the back of because he had done such pioneering work originally on this case. But unfortunately, at the time, uh, an opportunity presented itself to um, exchange immunity for one of the people involved uh, in order to be able to point to Red Glover, the Department of Justice denied that request for immunity back then. And of course, in um, you know the 2000s when these were reopened, the um, main perpetrator, Red Glover, was already dead. So it still goes unaccounted for. Can you tell us how he and was killed? Absolutely. Um, we do go into uh, how he was murdered. 
which was because of a bomb that was planted by the Silver Dollar Group and, um, and allegedly Red Glover in particular to go off when Worlis Sr. would be driving home from work uh, in February of 1967. And the bomb was specifically set to go off when his left-handed uh, turn signal was activated. And that's exactly what happened. And one of the most gruesome and horrifying parts of the story is that when the bomb went off, it could be heard throughout the neighborhood. It was only a few blocks away from the Armstrong Tire and Rubber Plant where he had worked and where he just received a promotion for a position that was thought of uh, you know, by the white community as for a white man only, which is part of the motivation for his murder. And Worlis Jackson Jr. was only eight years old at the time. He was out in front of his house when he heard the explosion. He hopped on his bicycle and rode over to see what the noise was. And, of course, what he discovered was the absolute worst thing a person could ever discover in their lives. And he's had to live with that every single day, as has his sister, Denise, who you know you see in the film because we follow their stories. She uh, fought to create a historical marker um, in matches. And Worlis himself um, has shared the story both through uh, tours, which you see, uh, kind of tours that disrupt the narrative that matches had for many years been famous for, which was telling their antebellum history as opposed to the history of the civil rights movement. Um, and also in one scene, you actually see Worlist connecting with and comforting a man whose uh, sister was killed by an off-duty police officer in the Chicago Police Department um, very recently. So it's connecting the past and the present, which is a big reason why we called it American Reckoning. Yoruba, Deacons for Defense and Justice. Can you give us a little bit about that? They were a uh, armed uh, self-defense group. Um, they actually started in Bogalusa, uh, Louisiana, and uh, were all throughout a secretive uh, group all throughout the South. Um, and Natchez had a, ch- a chapter that was that was created in 1965, and they are an untold part, as I said, of our of our civil rights history, which has been reduced to a nonviolent narrative that, you know, you don't strike back when you are harmed. But the Beacons for Defense did not did not adhere to that to that strategy. They protected civil rights workers who were working in Natchez to for integration. And they also enforced a boycott that um, of the white owned businesses that uh, was the was the way in which the civil right, the way in which the integration, their their goals of integration were met by the boycott, um, and uh, the boycott really brought the city, uh, the white business structure to their knees, and they gave in, and the deacons were the ones who enforced that. And I think it's also important to remember that the armed defense or self defense is not something that was new in the '60s. It's something that has always been part of African American history. That's how we survived. But that is it's not taught in the history books and it's not acknowledged as a a part of the strategy of the black freedom struggle. And this film, I think, really shows a piece of that. And it's really important. Did they ever use their weapons? Well, that is something that that we can't verify. nor Exactly. Yes. (laughs) 
We thank you both for taking time to speak with us about this story and look forward to seeing it, the premiere of American Reckoning on Frontline PBS at 9 Central Time. Thank you so much. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. I'm Desiree Frazier. See you tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Enjoy the sunshine today.